0: What is up, guys? Welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. What I'm going to be doing with this show is actually showing you guys what exactly you need to look for prior to buying, building, selling, or even renting a home. I'm going to bring in some of the top people in the industry so we can dive deeper into discussion about these topics and really give you guys the tools you need To learn and know prior to making one of the biggest purchases of your lifetime. So, with that being said, guys, welcome to the Real Build. So, welcome to the Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. And today I have a guest coming from Long Beach, California. He's the founder of the Urban Pacific Group and oversees all operations of the Urban Pacific family of companies, including business development, capital acquisition, and strategic planning prior to forming Urban Pacific. He was the director of land acquisition for a multifamily development division of Urban-based Saris Regis Group. Before joining Saris Regis, he was with Kaufman and Broad Multi Housing Group as senior project manager. He was responsible for all activities related to multifamily development, including the acquisition, entitlement, syndication, and development of over 1,900 affordable multifamily units throughout the Western United States. Prior to that, he was a project manager with Urban Base. Snyder Langston Real Estate and Construction Services. He holds a degree in business administration with specialization in finance at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Scott Shopping, <laughs> welcome to the Real Bill. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Bill. Thanks for the thanks for the good introduction. That's a that's a that's a read. That's, that's a, a heavy, that's a heavy tongue memory. twister right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, hey Scott, I'm 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 happy to have you on, man. Me and you had a conversation prior to this. I haven't really hit on the uh, multifamily development part mm-hmm. of my show, and I know there's people out there that are interested in it. I know there's a lot to it, and that's why I'm excited to have you on. And uh, you know, when we spoke on LinkedIn, I was I was pretty pumped when I saw what you do. So because there's a lot to it and there's a lot to talk about. So, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, you got it. Great um, to be here. What I like to always start out with is talking about your background. Obviously, I brushed on a little bit in the intro, so let's talk about who is Scott Shopping. Yeah, appreciate that question.
1: So, you know, just just a little bit of uh, background beyond what what the intro talked about. Um, I basically grew up in a, in a family uh, of people that were in the real estate development business. So my uncle Mike and my dad, Gary, were both real estate developers uh, in their own right. Um, my uncle Mike ran a company called IDM Corporation based here in Long Beach that did <clears throat> predominantly commercial high-rise construction, so I think commercial office, uh, and then, but did a lot of apartment acquisition and development. And then my dad uh, uh, ran his own company, um, basically doing purely apartment development, and then was a, you know, like a JV partner for a couple of major development companies um, based in SoCal, you know, sort of in the later years of his career, he's now retired, my uncle Mike's passed away. But it what it did is it gave me like a background and knowledge about what real estate development was, right? What does a real estate developer do? Because it's not like your mainstream career choice, like, you know, go to school in an elementary school, you go, Oh, I'm going to be a real estate developer. Like I, in fact, I have conversations today with people and they go, you know, what does a real estate developer do exactly? Like, you know, you, you, build the, you know, you build the apartments, you build the house. They like, go, well, I don't build them physically. I don't swing a hammer. We, we have teams of people that we work with. It goes, so you design it and go, well, we don't design it either. I mean, we, we set the strategy and the pathway for design, but I'm not like sitting at a you know, computer drawn cab. And that usually I get the, so like, what do you do? And, and the, the, the example I like to use is actually, this came from my uncle Mike. He always said that being a real estate developer is like being the conductor of an orchestra, right? We're entrepreneurs in real estate, is what he always spoke about. And our job is, as entrepreneurs, is to get from A to B, right? Like we're here, you know, at A, and we've got this objective B over there, and we got to figure out how to, how to get over there. And the example I used in the conductor of the orchestra was the conductor is sort of the, the, the leader of the whole group of people that are like brought together to work together. So you've got the violinist and you've got the cellist and you've got the people who play flutes. And so the conductor probably picks the music. Um, he knows what the violinist should be playing, but he doesn't play violin himself or herself. Right. It's that person's job to bring together the strategy and really execute on the music, you know, beautifully and produce a product and an event for an audience who then, you know, pays for it. Uh, the other example I use is like movie producers. You know, they have the idea, they raise the capital, they bring together the team, but they're not actors or writers or directors themselves. They are the the developer, the formulator of the idea, and then the putting together of the team to to execute on that, and so that's exactly what a real estate developer does. And in our in our instance, we find land, uh, we produce designs and and you know programs for product type that we think is going to be competitive in the marketplace. In our instance, you know workforce housing apartments. Um, so you know that's sort of I came into the business having an understanding about that. But then I combined that with a couple of key things. Um, one is, you know, at, at 18 or 19 years old, I wasn't necessarily settled that I wanted to be a real estate developer. You know, like kids are like a lot of times you don't want to do what your parents do. You want to do mm-hmm. the opposite, whatever that might be. But I read this book, you know, it's sort of probably, you know, if people read it today, it's sort of be a corny book, but it was one of those, you know, how to make, you know, a million dollars investing in our real estate in the on the weekends. And that book was key because it really opened my eyes to what being a deal maker was, right like I understood developer, you know you get land, you build buildings, but that the what was missing for me was the economic um, incentive to producing a project which you then either sell when you're completed as an apartment building you know to an investor or you hold that long term and so when those two finally coalesced, I was like okay, now I get it. Now I understand. And I, and actually, frankly, that, that was my biggest motivator, not because my dad and my uncle did it, but because I could understand it. And I saw a capability and a way, a pathway to produce a good life for myself. And and ultimately, you know, I mean, at that point, even then I knew I wanted to get married and have a family, which I do now, um, and married and have family that is, Uh, So it really sort of coalesced in that. And then really from really 18, 19 years old, it became my mission to prepare myself to go to school, to get a finance degree, um, to get internships, um, to get the right first job that was laying the, you know, the path for what ultimately I knew I wanted to be, which was a, you know, entrepreneur in real estate as a real estate developer of, really ultimately what's turned out to be new construction apartment buildings, right? Like that's really our, 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 you know, our, our our sole focus at this point in time and has been for, for many, many years.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, starting where you just left off too. I mean, not many 18, 19 year olds are thinking about investing in real estate. I mean, that's, that's
1: true. And I I
0: feel very fortunate that I figured that out. I
1: I recognize that it's not everybody's you know, not not that I'm any more intelligent than anybody else. I feel very fortunate. I just had good examples and I at least was able to pay enough attention, right, as 18 yeah. year olds to go, oh, okay, this is a thing we can do. Um, you know, and like a lot of people, uh, Bill, I, you know, I worked in, you know, for a few years after high school, I worked in the construction trades. In fact, this time period of 18 to 19, That also informed me, like, I don't want to do this. So sometimes it was not only what are people doing that I do want to do, but also experiencing, you know, working for wages Mm -hmm. and and going through that process and understanding what, like, you know, I saw people that were in construction industry, I was an electrician, which is actually relatively, like, it's one of the better trades in my mind to work, like, you know, use your brain, you know, not heavy lifting, hard labor, although there was some of that. But it really taught me. I go, oh, okay, this is what happens when you're working 30 years in the construction industry. Guys were beat up, bad backs, mm-hmm. you know, weathered, right? Um, all those kind of things. And so I, I also had the 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 great, you know, um, I don't say luxury. What's the word I'm looking for? But I had examples of what not to do, also, which I think is as key for anybody's learning as you know what to what to do.
0: Yeah. And you working in the construction trade too has obviously helped you. And, and mm-hmm. me doing my research on you, like I did, you kind of gave a little bit of background on your construction experience and that actually helping you in the development world too, I'm sure. Right. right. Because you've, you've swung a hammer. I talk about this all the time with building, uh, with new construction, you know, and residential that, you know, growing up, and you brushed on this too, is it was like a love hate thing. Did you think you were going to work in the industry that you're working in? No, I mean, I didn't think so either. When I was 18, 19 years old, did I think I was going to be a builder? No, I, I was a love hate thing. I hated, it. you know, I was cleaning <laughs> job sites, digging holes and everything It was the right. last thing I wanted to do. But you learn that's how you're going to make a living like you mm-hmm. said you can make a good living doing it but you can perfect it from what you say your dad did or your uncle did it too and mm-hmm. you having that construction experience obviously has probably helped you as well
1: it has you know I, I, you're right uh and i and sometimes i may you know because like i i jokingly say construction is the least Favorite part of my work as a real estate developer. Mm-hmm. It has to me the most ongoing challenges. Now, yeah. you know, we work as a developer, so we work in the political environment and city councils and planning commissions. But in a way, in real estate development, you can choose to buy a zoned site. Like that's one of the one of the tactics we use in our UTH, our workforce housing model. We'll go buy sites that have zoning already. So we can bypass the political process almost entirely. But for all intents and purposes, I can never bypass building the building, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hire people. Maybe we do a GC or not a GC, go direct in the subcontract markets, and and I do think it's coming. Maybe eventually the modular and or 3D printed house will become a real, mm-hmm. like you know, cost-effective deliverable model. We're certainly super enthusiastic about that, and you know, m- you know, panelized modular housing is becoming more um acceptable in the marketplace but at this point we still can't make the economics work as well as a traditional stick belt you know balloon frame you know three-story structure in california um but yeah you're right i i i find myself as i work with my teams that there's a lot of background knowledge i have about construction that informs us like one of the things we do as an example is we don't use gcs we go direct as owner to the subcontract market. So I call it, you know, uh, CM prime, which is meaning we're the construction manager's developer. Mm-hmm. We still run the project. We still do the draws. We still, you know, do the contracts with the subs, but we're direct to the subcontract market, like a home builder, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, you know, big production national home builder would. And we did, we made that move back in 2005, even prior to the recession in 2008, because we were having such, um, you know, in 2005 in California, we were at peak market like prior to the recession in 2008. Everybody was busy. At, you know, you couldn't get GCs to, you know, really pay attention. It, it was their marketplace, meaning they could dictate whatever price they wanted. And, you know, the prices were like ridiculous, right? And they go, hey, pay me this and I'll come do your jobs. Not fine. I don't I, And I get it, right? That's, that's the, you know, that happens in a peak market. So we brought all of our construction operations in-house. And I remember people telling me, Bill, they go, oh, don't do that, Scott. You know, you're, what did they say? A good guy who's a headhunter. And we we're talking about this because I think we we're going to start to hire like project managers and superintendents. He goes, no, no, don't do that. He goes, shift the risk to the GC, he says. Don't do that. Don't take that. And after a while and, you know, a few breakdowns in relationships we had on projects with GCs, I told them, I go, you know, actually at the end of the day, because I'm the guarantor on the construction loan, I ultimately own all the risk of that process Mm -hmm. anyways.
0: Yeah.
1: And when a GC doesn't perform, guess who gets, you know, hammered? I do, right? Mm -hmm. If, If like, if there's a breakdown, if there's a cost overrun, if there's a change order, if you know, if GC just can't perform, even though they're like a good person, like I go, I don't, control that risk. I pulled it all anyways. And so where where we made the moves, we said, yeah, I'm going to bring all the subs direct to us as the developer. So if I have an issue, I'm going to deal direct with the sub. If he's not manning the job, you know, enough with enough labor, I go, dude, what's going on? Right. Like I, like one of the examples I use is, you know, we had a big project, like one of the last projects we, you know, completed prior to the recession. And, you know, I went at like plumber, couldn't get stuff done. We had a big project, like 80 units, podium, underground parking, just crazy complicated job. And the plumber just could never get enough people there. And I remember I'd go by there and go, dude, what's the problem? He goes, oh, I haven't gotten paid. You know, classic, right, subcontractor, you know, complaint, right? Um, and I go, well, what do you mean? Yeah, I gave, you know, this guy, the contractor, list, you know, the GC, let's call him Joe, right? That was his name, but, you know, I won't name any specific names. And I go, I I just, you know, we just cut Joe a check for your invoicing for like, you know, hundred grand. So you should have plenty of money. I don't even remember what it was, hundred grand. He goes, oh, you know, he goes, actually, I cut a deal with Joe. He goes, he, he asked me not to pay him on this job, but he would catch me up on this other job we're working on, which is not our job. And I, and I, you know, blew up, right, of course. And it just, you know, those kind of lessons just taught me that, You know, if you get the good GC and the honest GC, then yes, it can work. But there's always going to be the overhead margin of markup that they have. I mean, that's their business. And the model is inherently contradictory or or contrary to the developers because a GC who's good will exploit holes in the plans and look for opportunities to change order. They don't want to take on any costs that are mistakes and plans that they didn't produce. And I get it but it immediately puts you at odds with the GC. Mm-hmm. It can be nothing but that way. And even good GCs will still have this issue. And then if you add, hey, they've got bad staff or the superintendent's not good. You know, I had one job, not the same GC, different GC. I think we ended up with like four different superintendents on a not a very big job, right? these guys couldn't perform, they'd be released. We get another new, you know, gotta get used to that guy, what's their system. And so ultimately in the day that in 2005, you know, although we finished those projects with the other GC through 2008, I just said, look, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, Although there was a cost, higher cost of time and energy and money to some degree. One, we can reduce the GC overhead load on the budget. Mm -hmm. And we traditionally right now in our UTH project, we don't charge GC fees. We just, you know, like you're getting the investors and us, we're getting our work at cost but I'm direct to the subs. I build good subcontractor or teams do PMs, um, you know, trusted relationships, guys that do this thing over and over again. Now we're helping them by basically building the same unit type over and over again, like production style. And that really, that does have a higher cost, but I have much more control. Mm-hmm. I can build a good subcontractor network that performs. They know our product. You know, We're always collaborating, hey, change this spec, You know, change that detail. And we're getting, I mean, right now we're on our probably sixth or seventh UTH project in our workforce housing business plan for the last three years. We're the most efficient production building I've ever had in my career. And I'm happy for it, right? I would like it to be, you know, as as efficient and effective as possible, right? In that, you know, old school construction domain.
0: Yeah, which all that experience too is. Probably help create that, obviously too. Yeah. But what you, with what you said about having the GC, you are correct. Is that any good GC? They're going to charge a premium on top of they're going to want to correct the errors. That's probably mm-hmm. that resonated with me because we don't do really any investor stuff. I've had investors mm-hmm. come to me. They were with other GCs that were a lot less money, we, yeah. And then that they did perform, yeah. Right? They always come back, and it's like yeah. every two years I see the same investor that comes back, and he's like, "Yeah." yeah I like, "Dude, deal. I told you don't yeah. work
1: with that guy," and you didn't listen And they, listen go, and and they like,
0: end up going right back to him because we price it out, <laughs> and then they don't like our cost, and then oh, so go you got to
1: tell him, dude, when are you going to listen to me <laughs> I Like I like, am telling you, I am scaring you. It's right every two, right two years, direction.
0: every two and a half years, you come back yeah. and you say, yeah oh, this guy, you know, and he's horrible, and this problem." And that problem, well, you know, we're not it's
1: not for everybody. I mean, doing Mm your own constru you know, is not like I have developers still that guy, I I could just never do that. And I I get it. And by the way, if we didn't have our UTH production model, like the design and the construction type and style, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that. Right. Like if we took on, you know, if we're gonna go do like a high rise building in downtown LA or downtown Long Beach, then I would, you know, I would make the assessment we're not capable in that space. We don't have the superintendent, the project managers who know high-rise construction, different, fully different network of subcontractors. So it's very specific, but we've shaped our business plan to utilize that capacity in a way. Now, I've always liked the idea of getting to a simpler construction model, right? I and mean, we've done tons of podium buildings, you know, underground parking structures with, you know, units stacked on top. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, why we do the simpler models, because those were so challenging and so complicated and if you didn't have the right gc right architect right structural engineer mep if, if those guys didn't work together well again i inherited the the liability of the execution or lack thereof in the in the project so part of our model is like simplify the type of product that you built now that happens to meet with our like market segment that we want to serve which is workforce housing um, but all those steps sort of come together coalesce in this model i mean in fact i'd say to people now we'll build the uth or urban townhouse model for the rest of my career and i have three kids that are you know oldest is in college and you know i had you know some some thought of them coming into the business and they'll decide whether they want to do that or not <clears throat> but this is a you know legacy that i think we can pass on mm-hmm. to go look we've built the this model the simplified production oriented middle income workforce housing model we're going to own them long term And it's, you know, delivering units into an undersupply part of the marketplace. So,
0: yeah. And let's go into that a little bit too. So, I mean, you chose to get into multifamily, obviously that was your path. Why multifamily development over, let's say, you know, residential development or, you know, flipping homes or rentals and stuff like that. Why'd you choose, obviously family was related in this too, but what are some of the other reasons?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, it definitely was related to family. Like, again, I back to that, like, statement I made of I understood mm-hmm. what a developer did. Now, developers, you know, in many cases don't only do development. You know, they'll do investment. Got in fact, my, my uncle Mike's company was IDM, which was investment development management. That was his, oh, okay. you know, that was the three things. So I think... Um, you know, it's a good question. I don't I don't know that I ever considered like I, I didn't think of it like, oh, I'll go into real estate investment versus development. Um, you know, when I so I think just from that time period where I decided I was going to be a developer, I had been around apartment projects. I, and when I was in the trades, I, I worked a, almost exclusively on on new construction apartment buildings, you know, in the trade, I in the electrical it, trade. Yeah. But I don't know that I ever like sat down and said, oh, home building versus multifamily development, right? I think I just had that background. But I think also just some various things informed me. One is, you know, like apartment development versus home building to me seemed more sophisticated, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, you had, and certainly home building is a very sophisticated business and has institutional investors and publicly traded companies. So I don't mean to downplay that, but I think in the context of people who are in the business, I think multifamily development is, is seen as a, a bigger challenge. But I guess maybe that's yeah. just my perception. I'm sure people listen, Scott, they don't, just, they don't agree with me. But I, for me at the time, this is what I perceive. So that's, that's part of what went for me. You know, when I got out of college, I actually interviewed to be a superintendent. The job that I wanted working for Mike Costa at Kauffman and Broad, which is one of the companies you referenced in the introduction, that was my dream job. I was I was in competition for the to, to be hired on with Mike, but it wasn't yet time. I'd graduated and there, he needed another year or two to get that division of of KB op, open and up to speed. And so I interviewed for a couple of home building companies. And I just remember going through the interviews, Bill, and I just I realized home building's not for me. I was like just you know, it seemed like producing widgets over and over and over again, you know, we've got plan A, plan B, and plan C, and you're the superintendent, you're just going to build a hundred of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's just this pure, pure construction. And I think the idea of, of working in the political domain, doing entitlements, of putting together capital structures for the deal And then the idea of owning them long-term, I think that was part of, I think what sort of gave me this feeling of like it being more sophisticated again, you know, this is an 18 and 19 year old perception of it. So I certainly think of it differently now. Um, But it turned out to be the case now, the other part of development versus say, just, you know, purely investment, which I think I I came to the conclusion after being in the business for a few years, for me, being a real estate developer, has been the most challenging, like uh, knowledge uh, acquisition and learning process that I've ever experienced in my life. Now, obviously, it was my career choice, and I I founded a company 20 years ago to do this. Um, but it, you know, for me, it's like I love. I can, you know, be on the phone call with an architect. I can then call an equity investor, and then I can call, uh, you know, the guy, the mayor of city X. And then, you know, I go back and then I manage a team to produce, you know, the build out process, whatever. So there were so many different knowledge areas that are wrapped up into, you know, it's sort of like this, this conductor idea, right? It's like a conductor would want to know intimately why violinists play the way they do and who's the best and why does one person sound different than another and really own that. And then, okay, I'm going to do that with cellos and and flutes, Right, I'm trying to use an example that people would, you know, sort of like have have a little bit better idea of how that works and be able to switch back and forth between those. Like it's never lack of challenge. Now that is also part of the risk profile of development. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, I think, you know, talked to several people who are in the investment community, and they're like, yeah, I've looked at development, but it's like a scary place for me. It's just like, there's a lot of complications that I don't understand. You know, the zoning process is sort of not your normal, you know, the political zoning process entitlements and all the rules, regulations go like, that's not a mainstream knowledge. You know, uh, you know, people, I think, know how houses go together when you build them, right? Oh, uh, you pour the concrete, then you frame it, then you, you know, do this and do that uh you know zoning and politics and planning commissions and rules and regulations and by the way we're in california which is the most complicated place yeah. in the united states to do that so you get you know you get to learn that on steroids so i think development sort of became i i think i intu- i was intuitive about it being challenging that's why i use the word sophisticated um but also that uh you know as i got into it it became true like i go oh this is a very challenging way to do it now i would assess myself after doing this for you know arguably 30 35 years i'm to a point where i know it really well there's always stuff to learn there's never mm. a lack of oh, stuff to yeah. go oh some change you know market changes politics change construction methodologies change Um, but I also, that informs me in the decisions I make is how we structure, how we do business, like the product Mm -hmm. type, the locations that we build in the idea that we talked about the construction being run in house, you know, the architecture teams that I work with, you know, we want to work with high trust over and over, you know, companies that have produced for us over and over. And we sort of shed all the BS, right? People don't perform, You know, uh, I don't think I'll do any more podium projects, you know, in my career because I experienced them. They were very complicated. We actually got relatively good at them at the tail end of the life cycle of doing those. But it's also says, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like there's a lot of brain damage in that. And, you know, we, we just, it's not that that's not a valid way to produce development projects. I just go in relative terms. I want to increase my chances of success. Maybe think of it risk mitigate my risk more lower my risk, or you know be producing projects in an area that we know better and have better networks, right? we can perform better, and and in fact the 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 saying that I use, Bill, is that uh, complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development. The more complicated your development project is, my argument, my thesis, and it's proved out over time. Is that you're, it's just going to cause you it to be a longer project, more time and schedule, more complication and, and chances for breakdowns, right? If you have to do entitlements, let's say you have to do a rezone versus mm-hmm. buy a site that's buy right with no rezone, I'm going to say the zoning is always going to be more complicated, right? But, you know, you have po- political bodies, planning commission, city councils. That's just a place that that's more complexity built into it. You can't eliminate. Now, different cities have different levels of that complexity and that risk. But I just go, hey, if I don't do that, if I choose a site that doesn't need any zoning, I just skip that whole entire risk profile or part of the risk. Great. Now, you know, people, you know, like doing entitlements and and there's a lot of value to be added there, by the way. I mean, I don't say entitlements are inherently bad. I just say they're more risky. But if you do it well, and I know, in fact, we've done it where we've entitled land land on several projects where we just turned around and sold the entitlements, you know, had the land contract, got, you know, a track map and zoning and, you know, pol- whatever political, you know, uh, actions we needed and turn around and just said, hey, here you go, you know, new developer or other developer, we're gonna sell this package to you. And, you know, I might argue that we've done better from a profitability given time spent and profit produced on those mm-hmm. projects than we did you know, and, and, you know, all of our other projects, you know, the types of projects that we did, but at the same time, the risk is higher, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's rewarding. So if you can do it correctly. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm UTH, our Urbantown House workforce housing model is the coalescing of all those things that I think can be done cost effectively, you know, to produce yield for investors and ourselves at the lowest complexity level, right? And then we want to get into a mode of, where we can just produce those projects over and over again. You know, we know how to do it. We get better database of historical costs. We we know it really well. Same teams, and then the, then we just have to be in a in a story of are we correctly meeting the marketplace, right? Is our product to those renters um, correct for the marketplace? Are we delivering units into undersupplied category of the market, which we are, uh, middle income renter families in in California and major urban metros. So there's other characteristics to it besides, you know, the construction and and the political side. But if I look at UTH, it's the it's the biggest. Uh, how can I put this? The most powerful and effective combination of risk mitigated, higher chance to execute successfully, mix of different things in the development
0: model that
1: I've ever had in my career, and and doing that by by design, by the way.
0: Yeah. And with everything i mean everything you just said right there for the so for the listener that's really not in the investment world a lot of the stuff you said is probably you know a lot of people have their mouths open or probably like you know what, what did he just say yeah and and you know, obviously it's a lot of long-term learning and, mm-hmm. and that's in any business but with yours too me being in the building world, I grew up in it. I'm still learning. I mean, there's mm-hmm. still stuff, and especially with custom homes, codes, stuff like <clears throat> that. You have a lot of other pieces within what you're dealing with, too, as far as dealing with you know, um, land issues and so on and zoning and all that kind of stuff, too. It, it, there's a lot more into it, but the long term gain on it as far as investment is a lot better because you're holding many doors it's it's doors versus you know we're building one house one door versus you multiple doors Mm -hmm. multiple investors renters whatever you own the property your investors do so i mean is let's do like go to go to a simplified timeline or Mm -hmm. more of a simplified timeline of let's say somebody getting into Commercial development mm-hmm. like how you know not coming from a family business, let's <laughs> say they got some capital, maybe need to raise capital, where do they start and then mm-hmm. let's go through the kind of timeline on that
1: so happy to happy to dig in let me just ask a question is this person coming into it already have some background in development or no background in development? Let's start with no.
0: Okay, Let's make it harder.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I asked that question because uh, if anybody wants to go to my LinkedIn profile, on there I've written several articles, and one of them is six ways to build your career in the real estate development business, and that's sort of applicable here to that okay. person who's coming into development cold, because really, its first is like uh, you know having the general competence to be effective in the development space. And that's there's no like standard. It's just like you go, can you be the type of person, have the type of knowledge in order to execute on the deal and make money? Right. Mm -hmm. Because lots of time people go into the development business for the first time. This is why it's scary for a lot of people because they've seen people do that. And you just don't know enough to not avoid mistakes that can be fatal or or lose you money or erode your returns. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that instance, there's ways you can Ways you can be and 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 ways you can act in the business that can af- make you more effective when you don't have any experience in it. And like in this article, what I talk about is you know get a get a mentor, right? It's the most basic yeah. advice, but you go, if I don't know how to do real estate development and I have aspirations or intentions to be in that space, then I can either learn by my own mistakes or I can learn from others' mistakes, right? to use mm-hmm. an old you know adage. And the way I go about that is get somebody in the business who's been there and done that and make them an offer in whatever way would be attractive to them to have you have them be part of your team, you know, cut them an equity piece in the deal or have pay them a fee. I mean, hire them as a project manager. I don't know. I'm making all these up, but you're basically acquiring knowledge that somebody else embodies. They already have it. They've already been through all these things. That's one way. The other way is, is to joint venture. Um, I was listening in the mornings when I when I, I go on i like sort of a like a like forced march in the morning so I, I, I walk several miles in the morning so I listen to podcasts I was listen to Michael Block's podcast if anybody's familiar with that and he's a real big advocate of of joint venturing your first deal right if you're mm-hmm. trying to buy apartments and be an apartment uh, you know owner sponsor he's like you got really you know go get a joint venture partner and I and I make the same claim in development in fact it's even more important to do that uh, and that could be the equity stake that described for the mentor you just say hey you find somebody i found this piece of land maybe i've got some capital from friends and family i'm in a jv with you know J- joe smith developer and in, in you know my local area and you know and you got to give make good assessments about them to make sure they're good people and good selves and trustworthy and all that stuff that you know is, is you know necessary to have a successful partnership. But then you just, again, you're, you're buying their knowledge by having them participate in your deal. And, and I will tell you as a developer, like if somebody brings me a decent piece of land and they figure out, you know, it's got the right zoning and they've got it tied up and they've done some bird dog work on it. I mean, we do this all the time. In fact, I have a guy who is a project manager now on our team, Francis Moreno, and he did exactly that thing. He found a deal. Uh, Amazingly put it together, got general plan member memory zones, got this whole thing, bought the land, found some early equity investors. But when it came time to actually build the project out, he got stuck because people in the investment community didn't see him as, you know, fully capable to actually execute on the construction of it. And so we actually met on bigger pockets of all places. He reached out to me and we now uh, actually are about to finish construction on this on this project. And then he, I invited him in to become an intern. He's now basically a you know, part-time project manager with us and, I, and we'll, we'll come on full-time. And we just had a conversation yesterday and you know, I said, hey, you've you learned a lot, right? You know, crash course in everything. In fact, to me, you, you will get this bill. It's like, you cannot r- learn real estate development like from books or, you know, if you try to go look up real estate development on YouTube, I mean, there's lots of videos, but most of them are not. In fact, we, I'm working on several videos, articles, and books that would actually be a street savvy style teaching, you know, module, set of modules to, you know, to be able to, to convey to people how to do it. So, as an example, we made a 13 uh, video series that's up on our YouTube channel which basically took us through the entire life cycle of a construction of a small multifamily deal in California. Like from early due diligence, geotechnical testing, all the way through, hey, we just got our CFO and here's a final walk of the project. And literally over 13 videos, hey, here's due diligence, here's grading, here's foundation, here's framing, here's mechanical, electrical, plumbing, roofing, insulation, you know, these are all the video titles, arguably. And we did that intentionally to be able to do that. But Francis, in this example, and then sort of go back to my answer about mentoring and JVing, is that you really have to be in a deal and go through the deal and learn all the, you know, millions of little small decisions that are made daily and all the challenges that come up. And, you know, that's why it takes somebody, you know, several, several years, you know, we look at the 10,000 hour rule, right? Um, Malcolm Gladwell and his, uh, you know, his his idea that it takes ten thousand hours to learn something at expert level, and one of the way the the best way and why Michael Block is such a big subscriber is like, hey, just get into a deal. You don't have to be the leader. You don't have to be the main sponsor. You don't even have to, you know, play a big part of it. But just be in the deal. Observe how it goes. Ask lots of questions. Maybe bring some capital. I don't care what it is, right. And do that, you know, one or more times. And, and I, I promise anybody after like just a handful, like Francis, I think by the time we finish probably two full deals, full cycle, he will be like a relatively effective project manager where I could at any point go to him, hey Francis, we need to go into plan check, get ready for submittal, go. And he mm-hmm. knows all what to do. You know, he may still have little, you know, techniques of how to overcome, you know, unusual challenges that are, you know, happen in any
0: project. So,
1: I don't know. Does that answer your question? Hopefully it does. Yeah, like no,
0: 100%. And I'm a big advocate <laughs> on what you said, too. Uh, because it's not easy what you're doing, too. in and, and For somebody to just hop into it without any experience, yeah, even if they had the capital, yeah, dude, I I would say to somebody. In fact, I've
1: done this on several times, not to not to keep going on the answer, but I had several people that we basically sort of advised. You know, they paid us for our knowledge in the in the in the way that I described earlier, and I told them, "Hey, dude, don't do this. Like, don't do this project." You know, like they wanted to go build a really complicated. In fact, one person wanted to build a podium deal. I mean, he's doing it and I think he'll like, he'll survive, but I go, go do a duplex, go do a fourplex, right? I mean, or JV with somebody on that bigger project, but don't take on that. Again, this complexity is the enemy of profits, right? If you have not enough knowledge and you up the complexity level, that just increases your likelihood of, of failure or eroded returns. And, you know, I've sworn people off several times, like, don't do that. And I don't want to be that, you know, it's not my intention to like, you know, you shall. But I go just do go to take it from me. And a lot of times these are lessons, Bill, that I learned myself the hard way. Like we did projects that we should never have done. Bigger stuff that we sort of made the leap too soon. In fact, when we started the UTH program three years ago, we sold off all our podium projects. You know, did really well in 2016 you know, you know, project development and recovery from the, from the recession. We intentionally started the UTH program really small mm-hmm. and really close to home. And we called it the demonstration phase. And I really wanted to be able to prove the model to, to work through like low exposure projects where if something happened that, like we didn't know enough about this, our UTH product is a five bedroom, four bath, three story townhouse, a very unusual rental product. And un, untested in the marketplace, no one's doing it at scale. And so, uh, having learned those lessons, I go, "Oh, let's start with this product, with this this demonstration phase. Let's test the model. And if it blows up in our face, we'll survive and we'll we'll have learned a lesson and move on. And we ended up proving the model on, in several different you know ways that are important to development. You know, construction execution and cost, do we achieve rents and do we achieve values? Those are the three that we, that we were testing. And then by the fourth project, which was the final one of the demonstration phase, we really, you know, learned a bunch of lessons and stuff that we, gosh, we know how to do construction, but we learned something new, or we found the right sub to do this or do that. And we got rid of that mm-hmm. other sub. And, and I remember one, of, we had a horrible time with a sur- of all things, surveyors on the site that we did one site. And we we'd committed to this one guy, one survey company, And it was just awful. And I remember I I waited way too long to fire the guy and go find another survey and pay them whatever they needed. Surveyors are really super busy and have been since like 2014. A lot of people went out of the business, business increased. And all of a sudden, every surveyor is like, dude, I can like call me in three months (laughs) and I can go do your, your boundary survey. And I just hung on way too long. And I look on the background and I go, you know, I You know wasn't you know this had never been an issue before and Mm -hmm. you know i'm a fairly patient person but i just i let it go on too long like this is an example so we've continuously sort of weeded our team of people that didn't perform got better people that did perform usually costs will go up to some degree but we're you know we're working on that as well and so now we're on our like sixth seventh project in the uth program And we really dialed this program in, at least in our SoCal market, you know, we want to expand in other markets. And it's really come to the point where we're really fine-tuning it right now. We're just really systems designed to make it just ever more efficient and more importantly, take me out of the, you know, I, I don't manage almost any of these, you know, processes anymore directly. Like we have team members that do that, but I'm still in sort of like some design to make it more efficient. And eventually here, you know, as long as the market doesn't change dramatically on us, you know, we'll have a full on production, you know, building and development model where I can then, you know, completely focus on, you know, strategy, which is where I'm best, you know, raising capital and, you know, watching the market
0: change and adjusting to that.
1: Um, but that's, you know, that's an ongoing process, sort of like you said, you know, for your own business, I'm sure it's the same.
0: Yeah. Well, you, what you just, uh, the key thing on that, what you just said too, is you've been through it all. You've learned it. You've, you've had all these experiences and yet you still get people that call you and kind of go against what you say, but they're going to have to learn the hard way too. Why not just yeah. use a mentor like yourself you know, and or stick with a mentor like yourself or work for you, you know, sometimes I've yeah. even said, and some of these guys too, like, you know, even in real estate, like a lot of realtors and everything going on that example, they, they say, you know, how do I get started? What do I do? Well, go work for the top producing broker for free. Just tell them how yeah, to work. Exactly right. Be like, hey, yeah, what In fact, that do? article
1: I said, we'll go work for free. And I, yeah. and I still, to this day, Bill, people go, really? Do I have to work for free? I go, hell yeah, man. Well, I go, <laughs> you, you will get, the, you know, I mean, it, it's an education that you...
0: You can't pay for, for, for most of,
1: You Yeah, right. It's like, I mean, you know, I mean, one, you have to get the right person and make them the yeah. offer. Um, but I, uh, all the time. And I've had actually people who wanted internships with us. And I said, Hey, wh- you, you, you'll work for free. And yeah. they go, I don't want to do that. And I go, I get it. I, I'm not like wanting to, um, you know, hammer on people that, you know, cause sometimes people got to make a living like, and they can't switch careers. And I go, I get that, but I'll give them offers. Hey, work on the side, keep mm-hmm. your day job, go find land on the side, the weekends, the evenings, man, you yeah. got that time. And go work for free, make the offer developer. Hey, I will go find sites for you for free. No obligation. You don't pay me. I don't get paid until it's successful. But when we do, I want to be part of the deal. I want to sit on your shoulder and learn, right? I want to go to meetings. I want to read documents, right? In fact, I. this is one of the offers I make for people. Like If we're um, having people that bring us JB deals, you know, like a land JB, like, hey, I own the land. I want to put it into a deal. We work together. I go, great. And then I always offer them, hey, by the way, if this is a career aspiration of yours, I'll offer, uh, you know, we'll teach you. No, I can't, can't be me. I don't have the capacity to, but go to meetings,
0: mm-hmm. read
1: the documents, um, go, be on conference calls, be on Zoom calls and just be there. Or we'll answer questions. Like I don't like, you know, I mean, you know, you know, we want, you're going to be part of the deal in essence in a JV. And uh, that I think is incentivized. In fact, my deal with Francis, I think that's what sort of brought him ultimately to the decision to come with us in a land jv was i said dude when you work with us you're going to learn Mm -hmm. you know i'll I'll, like if you want to spend some time i'll use you you know you got and, and in fact it was good for us too because he had already built relationships with the city that we work in for this project you know new council members new staff you know those people change but he had built this rapport and i go that's that has value and then and then I go, but I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna go have you do other stuff. I'm gonna go have you go down to the city and submit plan check and see how that like crazy mm-hmm. process is, right? And you know that's how that internship sort of developed out of it. But you're exactly right. I, go find a developer in your local town and and make them an offer that's a of value to them, that's somehow helpful to them, and tell them I will work for free. I mean,
0: yeah, that I, that know.
1: will alone rise you out of the soup. Yeah. of all the people who are like, yeah, dude, I want to learn, but you know, you got to pay me,
0: you know? And I go, I mean, I don't. Well, why to. should you pay it? Why should you pay them over, you know, this other person? And so I mean, it, I mean you
1: know, it, it look, again, there's nothing wrong with it, Yeah, but if you want to get that opportunity, you have to be competitive, meaning you have to produce some better value to that person who you're asking the internship or, or at least making the internship offer and, and, Doing it for free will be one of those things that most people won't do. And again, it's nothing wrong with the people wanting to get paid. It's yeah, just you're okay. going to rise above all the masses. You're going to go, oh, it's free? Okay, really? Okay, I'll, I'll take that. You know, you got to really well, That's do a big, It's a
0: big impression to anybody. Oh, yeah. But also, totally. I mean, like, like you said too, if somebody says, hey, I don't have the time. I don't have, you know, I, I got to make money, this and that. Okay, well, we all have the time. It's always, you know, it's no different than us fitting in this podcast right now. We don't, we don't, we could easily say we don't have the time to do this, record a podcast. We, you know, we're at work, this and that. You always can find the time. Just like you said, you can go on the weekend instead of, you know, hanging out with your buddies, relaxing on the weekend Mm -hmm. because you got the days off, go, go look at property and bring it back to you and say, Hey, I saw this property you know, I don't know if anything can come, but I want to follow you along on the deal with it. Like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's even like, Hey, I
1: found a property. Like, was this fit? What, what questions should I be asking about the next mm-hmm. property that will fit better for you? Right. The, again, the value it's like, Hey developer, what kind of sites are you looking for? Is this fit now? And you know, you've obviously be sort of like effective mm-hmm. and efficient with your time with them. Um, but you know, you just keep doing that over and over again. In fact, I advised one guy, he was like, he was sort of like a, like an IT, uh, digital content marketing consultant who worked with us and he wanted to get into business. So we spent some time, I traded his services for my teaching. Like mm-hmm. that was the deal we made, right? We did that over a few sessions. And I told him, I go, dude, take your spare time and go. He wanted to get into investment. I go find a hundred multifamily properties on the market and the markets you want to be in, underwrite them, Call the brokers, ask the questions, and I said, "I promise you, by the hundredth deal, you will know deals and the marketplace inside out." Um, and in fact, I think he's in that process right now of, of going through it. It'll probably take him, you know, a year or two to, you know, review that many deals given his, you know, other workload. Um, but if you're after it, at, you know, I mean, think about it: take a year or two to, like know the market probably better than a lot of general investors who use brokers and aren't that close to the market. Mm -hmm. You probably may know the market better. And then you go, and then you find the really good deal. And then you take it to that JV partner and the JV partner goes, holy shit, this is a really good deal, man. How'd you find it? Oh, I went through 98. And then I found this one. And I know the market so well now that, you know, I know this is a good deal. And so you have this sort of, you know, knowledge of the time you spent. um, That's, you know, you can't,
0: Like buy that,
1: Mm -hmm. right? It's valuable.
0: All right. So, we're one thing I wanted to talk about too, Mm -hmm. because you're you're in uh, workforce housing. You brought that up. So, what is workforce housing? Just so yeah,
1: yeah. Appreciate that. So, uh, it's a great question. In fact, I normally offer my definition of workforce housing like as an automatic, just because there's so many different ways that people think of it, but. Our definition is, you know, is housing that serves middle-income families. Now, you can, people can argue that, you know, hey, it means, you know, true affordable housing, right, for low-income families. It could be um, for sale. It could be for rent, right? There's no standard definition for it. For us, it's rental housing that serves middle-income families. So I like to call it workforce housing because really for us, our housing being five bedroom four bath townhouse rental serves multiple multi earner it serves multi earner households right yeah. and those are families naturally most often, although it does serve you know roommates right you could include that in that but really what we're we 're talking about is housing that fits working class families lifestyle and is fits not only in their living style or what they need physically for their family to be comfortable, but also is at a rental rate that is, it fits their income demographic, right? So one of the ways that we also describe workforce housing, at least for our model, is that it serves families that are between 80 and 120% of median income of the local area that the housing is in. So for us, it's LA and Orange Counties predominantly, but you know any major urban metro will have these statistics. And it's, you know, it's generally going to be, you know, a family of, say, mom and dad, Uh, like most often we have adult kids living with mom and dad, younger kids of the parents or younger kids of the adult kids, in-laws. And then uh, one of the things that we do in our five bedroom, four bath townhouse product is that we always build a bedroom bathroom on the ground floor. To serve an older generation being at grandparents mm-hmm. or older in laws that have mobility issues, that they can live with the family, but have their, you know, their bedroom bathroom be accessible, you know, if, if they happen to be in a wheelchair and some people have argued, hey, wouldn't you want grandma on the middle floor? we have a bedroom on the middle floor, you know, closer to the kitchen for some cultures, you know, is going to be the one who cooks and, and, you know, we're, we just tell people, look, whatever is conducive for your lifestyle. We just ha- want to offer, you know, all the possibilities that best serve your family. And in fact, so we got the you know ground floor bedroom bathroom. We have a two car garage, private direct access garage, like a house, mm-hmm. right. That's unusual in the apartment marketplace in unit you know, laundry room, Um, And then the thing we look at is four bathrooms, right? Think if you're a family of six or eight, four bathrooms is a big deal, right? That's actually Mm -hmm. usually everybody's getting ready to go to school or work in the morning. You know, your bathrooms become, you know, like a constraint. Like, you know, you got to, you know, sort of, you know, makes it harder on your family to, 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 you know, live effectively. So again, it's rental housing, 80 to 120% of median income, you know, middle-class working families. You could call it blue collar housing would be another way to describe it.
0: Gotcha. And let's go. So I want to talk about like the process a little bit more too, Mm -hmm. because obviously capital raising capital, that's, you know, probably the initial point too. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of brush on uh, placement. So how do you distinguish? All right, where are we going to put these multifamily units? Where are Mm -hmm. we, you know, how do you distinguish all these things? How do you, you know, with, as far as raising capital, where's that coming from and where the placement of the building is going to go. And Mm -hmm. then obviously you brought, you already talked about the construction and how you go about, you know, your subs, you have your certain subcontractors. So let's go with, you know, talk about capital and placement. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I'll I'll answer the second question first. So placement and, and what I listen, when you say that is, you know, where do we locate our projects? Like what Mm -hmm. neighborhoods, what cities, right. Mm -hmm. That the way, Okay. So the thing that's interesting about the families that rent in our units is that they already exist in this environment. In fact, I've met with a family office, you know, probably three and a half years ago. And the guy who was like the lead investment manager, he had an interesting question. He goes, you know, Scott, these are big families. He goes, how do you put two families that don't know each other together? Like, mm-hmm. they don't know each other. Like, how do you do that? How do you know them? And I go, oh, no, you don't. You're, you're missing it. I go, these families already exist in this environment. They live in these neighborhoods already. They they just happen to live in housing that's not a fit for their family lifestyle. So as an example, we find many families that are moving into our units are coming out of two units in another apartment building in the neighborhood. Maybe it's side by side in the same building. Sometimes it's, hey, you know, grandma and, you know, younger kids, you know, live down the road or whatever, like adult kids and grandma live, you know, two blocks away and you know, uh, parents and younger kids live in the other unit. But the key to think about this is that they sh- they have an economic sharing lifestyle. These are families that culturally live multi generationally, right? That bed- downstairs bedroom bathroom being you know one of the key ways that we serve that, and they also share incomes and expenses across the broader multi earner household, right? Oh and so what this does this does a couple things. One is it allows them to afford housing at a rate that is not uh, damaging to their capability to sustain their lifestyle and and at least live a decent life, right? They're not overburdened. And the reason for that is because basically when you share rent or other costs amongst four earners or five earners and how many ever in the household, that means each earners load on the household and and the family is less, right? And so Mm -hmm. the jobs that, You know, like a lot of times you hear the statistic where they go, oh, you know, it takes, you need to make, what, $54 an hour working full time to afford a one-bedroom unit in California, whatever. I have the stats wrong, but you you get the the gist of it. And that's true if you're one earner renting one apartment. But what if you're four earners renting a five-bedroom unit? What you're doing is you're spreading the cost amongst more earners which basically allows you to attain the housing more affordably to going along with less poverty rates, right? When you have more people producing income for the family group, there's much less likelihood for them to fall into poverty, Mm -hmm. but also interestingly enough in a recessionary environment, that family is more defensive and stable because they have multiple earners. In fact, the terminology I've been using recently is recession resilient. In other words, our UTH, urban townhouse model is a recession resilient, new construction housing investment, right? That's how we speak it. And the, two, the three main things that I say make up recession resilient, like why is it recession resilient? Is multi-earner, right? More sharing of incomes and expenses across the family group. Two, that because we're serving these middle-income large families, multi-earner households, it's under Like we're one of the few, only a handful of maybe two or three people that I know in the marketplace that are delivering this kind of product and we're the only one doing it at scale. Mm-hmm. And then the third is that these families have very strong social networks. In fact, I describe them as being sticky, meaning they have kids in school. Uh, they generally have their churches down the road, their extended families is around them right in the, in the local community most often they're historically from here, right? Like your Gen Z, you know, whatever, 19 year old who moves to get their first job from, you know, they move from, you know, Dallas to LA to get that cool job and they rent that apartment. Well, the thing is, as soon as that job situation changes for them, two things happen. One is they have one household income. They can't afford that unit anymore Mm because they lost their job. And two is that they're they from Dallas. They're going to, guess what? They're going to go home they're gonna move home with their parents. And I don't wish that that would have to happen, but if you look at the statistics, in a recession, people move home or they combine mm-hmm. their family together. Because in fact, uh, Pew Research did a study in 2007 or so like 2010, and they studied the era from 2007 to 2009, meaning the main part of the damage in that recession in that era. And what they basically determined was 49 million households combined together when they had been separate before, right? And they didn't have a specific number of people. But if I said each household was two people, that's a hundred million people moving together, right? To share incomes and expenses, I guess. You're going to hear the steam coming up over and over again. And they do that because that's what people need to do when underemployment or unemployment comes and they need to share incomes and expenses. They, they move home to do that, right? Mm-hmm. All we're seeing is that there's families that already do that naturally and they don't live any other way because culturally they already live multi-generationally. All we're doing is giving them a housing type that fits their lifestyle and their capability to afford and spread costs on the housing amongst more earners. We're just giving them a unit type that doesn't exist already and that basically served that family, right,
0: powerfully. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, what you're doing is one of the smartest things. <laughs> I have uh, I mean, as far as multi-family, yeah. I've heard, I mean, that's like you're basically you're ahead of the problem is where you're at. You're beating the problem. So obviously, there's always going to be recessions. They come and yeah. go, come and go. We all know that, uh, you know, as far as economics 101, I mean, there's going to be a new, another recession. You would think
1: that, Bill, but not <laughs> yeah. everybody holds that like you just spoke in. Yeah. But,
0: but you're exactly right. In fact, I, I
1: study with a group called the AGI Network and the principal of that group is, is named Toby Hecht. And, He, uh, when I first started learning with him in 2012, he's like, you know what, look, markets are fundamental. They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. That never ceases, that never changes. And then I added on to that, only the timing is different from cycle to cycle, right? But he said, you know, it's interesting because, you know, people, they get depressed and down when the market's at a trough that's when they should be excited because that's when the territory can be captured. And yeah. when the, the, you know, real estate, I mean, he, he's not a real estate guy, but he's, you know, I thought, oh, the real estate prices are, you know, most effective to buy then. And then he goes, I also understand why at a peak market people are like super enthusiastic and gosh, it's great. It's always gonna be great and it'll go on forever. And he goes, you know, the, you know I mean, his, his point was not that people need be wrong. But that their interpretation of how to be and their moods during those cycles is like she needs to be the opposite. Right. And and it sort of fits with the, you know, everybody's heard this, the, uh, you know, the uh, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren Buffett's, Warren, you know, yeah. be greedy when people are scared and be scared when everybody agrees. Same, same idea. But I, I was appreciated what toby said because it's just basically it's fundamental we can always trust like you spoke Mm -hmm. what i you know what i subscribe to which is like look a recession's coming and we're not in a bad mood about it Mm -hmm. we just say we need to be prepared in fact this is why we converted our entire uth program about 24 months ago now our original idea was to merch and build them build them rent them sell them right just produce the project and sell them and we convert everything to long-term hold for two reasons. One is that we are such believers in the undersupply story for a really long time period in California. I mean, it's going to be decades before we catch up and maybe even never then, right? Given our political environment, resistance to housing. But also go, hey, I from 2008, I learned lessons, which is don't have to sell when the recession, when you're in the middle of the recession. Like, don't time your... Investment window to end when the when the recession is now. Of course, you can't plan for that. You don't know. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we converted to a ten-year hold twenty-four months ago, and now raising all of our capital on a ten-year-old base with the logic: look good. We've got ten years, and the recession is going to come. You know, two to five years from now, then we're going to go through the cycle. We won't be compelled to sell assets. Yes, values will change, but if we have a stable recession resilient. Renter profile, which we talked about just a minute ago, that I can trust that the NOI and income production on our units will be relatively stable, mm-hmm. and then all I got to do is manage them to not, you know, be forced to sell, and hence the timelines of the investment, and make sure they're cash flow and all the kind of things. We can ride the recession out, right? We yeah. can, on a ten-year basis. I go, I'm, lo- I'm more likely to get through the recession, come out the other end. And by the way, I mean, you, you probably saw this, but dude, like the Panic in 2008. I mean, and and by the way, we went through it, it was awful, right? 2008 was terrible for sale, markets were just. But if you look at multifamily, relatively stable. I mean, I think I did the research through CoStar and rents, and generally in Southern California went down like two, three percent, depending on what region of LA you were in, like nothing, right? Mm -hmm. In in all Mm -hmm. reality. And so you go, if you got a good tenant who doesn't leave, Right. Remember that Gen Z person who rents by themselves and is from Dallas. Well, guess what? Their propensity to move in a recession is very high, and nothing wrong with that. That's completely natural for their part of their life cycle that they're Mm -hmm. in. They're young. They're mobile. You know, they can go home. They, you know, they don't have a lot of stickiness. They don't have a lot of things tying them to. And I don't say that's better than the families or that the families are better. I just go if I choose to rent to somebody. I would rather rent to a tenant that I think is going to be relatively stable and, and you know, sticky by choice, right? I mean, if, look, if families want to leave California, which they are, right? Middle-income families are leaving. Like, that's the highest percentage of people leaving California is middle-income I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. If you can go to Dallas and make the same wages, more or less, and have half the housing costs are lower, you, people should do it. But yeah. there are people that will stay in California. They love it here, and they will figure out ways to sustain their life here. And all we say is, hey, we're going to serve those middle income families that are making that choice
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and, and deliver a very valuable product to them. And then, one more thing I'll add this is the thesis for the investors when we talk to them. In other words, when you invest with us, and why, the why should you invest with us? Basically, you get a brand new asset renting to an undersupplied, long term stable family group of multiple earners, right? Mm-hmm. The recession resilience versus if you bought, you know, let's say you bought a distressed apartment product today, like let's say it's a value add deal, right? They got a great, you know, proposition to to buy a, a building in LA or wherever you invest. It happens to be all one bedrooms though, right? We say that's a recession prone asset because basically the demographics of single earners and those mobile, you know, tenants, right, that can move quickly, those are what make it made it recession prone in the beginning and why it's distressed by the way. And so in this era right now where we're in, where everybody's like, hey, it's a recession, I'm gonna go invest in distressed assets. I, I go, great, You know, if you can find the right deal and it's a good deal and you can buy a discount, I, I'm there, right? But I, I just say to people, look, if you are making your choice and you're a long-term holder, then I would, I would for my own investments, rather be in an undersupplied, long-term stable marketplace by the way, in a, the most supply constrained marketplace in the United States, which is California, and that's not changing anytime soon. So the, so the makeup of the investment thesis of UTH really is what we talk to investors about uh, with the you know with the idea of saying, hey look, you know if you've got all your choices of investment to make, which we compete in that marketplace right? I got investment A, B and C, which is the best one, and not everybody wants. you know some people like, I want to invest for a three-year window, I want to make my money and I get out you know, that's totally valid too. We just say, Hey, we're, we're talking and wanting to have conversations with investors that want long-term stable investments with a, with a bright future. And that's sort of how we come to the investment marketplace. I was answering your, your other question.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause it's safe what you're doing. I mean, anything recession proof is, is cause like we just talked about, there's recessions come, they go. Uh, most people, a lot of people tend for, you know, for a lot of, Reasons? uh Well, I don't know why, but uh, if you listen to that Warren Buffett mo- model, I mean, I guess when things are high, a lot of people think they don't want to miss out, so that's why they're yeah. in buy mode. I got to buy now, you know. Like in this market currently, right now, everybody's buying low interest rates, or they're doing building loans, so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. You know, moving out of cities and so on down where where I'm at. Like me and you talked about, and there's not a lot of inventory left. And when stuff pops up, they're paying overpriced for it too. <laughs> you know, and then you get into those kind of things, but then when the market's soft and nothing's happening, we are in a recession. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those people aren't buying, but the investors are, you know, the smart yeah. ones are that are they're invest they're buying up the land to where four years, five years down the road, they're getting. Yeah. The- we're, we're,
1: you know, and, and you, you, it's inside what you just said, but uh, I mean, in, in the housing marketplace generally, which includes for sale and multifamily mm-hmm. and I'm speaking here, um, we're in great shape now. Yeah. I'm not sitting here, you know, I don't ever say we're bulletproof. Um, we have to be watchful, of the terminology yeah, of they use of is course. vigilant, right? Like so we wanna produce business, we wanna do conservatively underwritten, viable projects, right? Um, but we have to be vigilant about, you know, what I'm reading about right now is, you know, second and third tier consequences from the, you know, the deep, quick recession that we have. Like we put a lot of damage into the economy, right? Businesses closing, people unemployed. Um, and right now, I, you know, we're, we're sort of doing okay. You know, a lot of stimulus came into the marketplace, but, you know, we're, we're you know, watchful, we're vigilant, but I still have to go back to fundamentals. That's why I keep mm-hmm. keep going back. I go look if, if, you know, one, I don't suggest, and I think most people agree with it. That I think multifamily is strong. We were undersupplied. Generally, nationally, in in most regions, for the most part, I mean, a little micro markets were oversupplied to some degree. Mostly, a luxury, right? Where, where you're going to see the pressure downward in rents. But multifamily, as a general thesis, we have housing prices in most major urban et- metros far, you know, outrunning you know growth and in incomes, right? In fact, if you look at the graph, incomes are stagnant and housing prices go, you know, sort of here's incomes and here's housing prices that are going up right, at, at, a, at a, you know, 45-degree angle on the graph. That's not going to end, right? And we again, we don't wish for that. That's sort of, that is income inequality in a, in a way, right? At least from relative capability to afford housing. But the idea that the marketplace can innovate and serve those, you know, those middle-income families through a different methodology, yes, you may have to share, you may have to have kids that stay with you at home or have the in-laws move in with you, And maybe everybody would say that that's not preferable, but the reality is most of the world lives multi-generationally already. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, the American marketplace, you know, the traditional nuclear family from the 50s was completely an anomaly in in both historical terms and general population culture, right? You go, any Asian country lives multi-generationally. Like they wouldn't even think about living any other way. It would seem Mm -hmm. strange to like not live that way Obviously, a lot of the, you know, Latin American, you know, uh, you know, cultures live that way. I have people come to me all the time and go, dude, I totally get what you're doing here because I grew up in a house like this. And Mm -hmm. I totally get that. And what they what they say to me, I go, well, do do you live that way now? And some people do. Some people don't. I go, why not? But they also a lot of times they go, oh, well, there's really no apartments that can like serve our families. You know, there are single family houses. But a lot of families don't afford the down payment or the income qualification to buy a house. And I always tell internally in my narratives, look, if a family could could rent a house or buy a house and have the American dream with a backyard, front yard, white picket fence and two car garage, I, I, you know, people should do that. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of families that can't. And so then we go, but is the marketplace serving them? And if it's not, that's where we want to be. In fact, that's exactly you know why, why we have arrived at this. So, you know, there's a lot of compelling logics that far outweigh like this recession, right? And also the other thing I'll share with this, um, there's a great website called calculatedriskblog.com, uh, calculated risk for short. And it's written by a guy named Bill McBride. Bill was a really, he's not an economist in the normal way. In fact, it's sort of like a fortune, retired you know executive from a fortune 500 company but he writes a lot about economic you know goings on he does great graphing. that's one of the reasons i go but he's he writes a lot about housing and he made the claim he called the 2007 before it came he called the bottom at 2011 and then he's and then he basically his latest thing was he said housing will not lead the economy into the recession like it normally does so in mm-hmm. in 89 90 it led the recession in 2007, clearly housing led us, like it dragged us into the downturn. Mm-hmm, right? It's mm-hmm. traditionally, and he said housing won't do that this time because because we're still in a hangover to some degree from 2007, right? 2008, and that actually turned out to be true. In fact, he went on further to say the economy is really good. Of course, uh, it's gone very long. Right, we were in the 10-year economic mm-hmm. economic expansion longest in U.S. history. He said, housing's not going to lead us in, but he sort of made the claim and it turned out to be true. Some black swan event is what he thought the logical, and he didn't know what it would be. And certainly no one could have anticipated coronavirus. But all that leads back to this fact that we generally are still, for the most part, under given what you talked about, people wanting to move to suburban markets, move into, you know, from blue states to red states is another move we're seeing, urban to suburban mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that's bolstering the for sale marketplace big time. So that's very healthy. And then, you know, our, our argument is that, you know, multifamily generally is undersupplied. And certainly in our marketplace for workforce, working families and, you know, middle income families in California, no supply, like mm-hmm. like zero other than us, you know, at scale. And so, you know, we're, we're you know, we're bullish. In fact, we're accelerating our business plan right now because not only do we have these stable renters and people continuing to want to lease new units, we've got good velocity on new leasing, but we're actually starting to see advantage being gained by lowering land prices. And I haven't seen construction pricing decline show up yet. Um, Waiting for it. I've seen a lot more availability of labor. So lowering land costs and lowering construction costs, or at least more labor, which should drive costs down in construction over time. How's this actually being accelerating right now. So we're we're actually doing more projects now than we were doing in January 2020 hmm. uh, based on this, you know, solid performance, these stable families, right sticking around, renting new, and then this, you know, these declining land and construction prices.
0: Yeah, there's a ton of multifamily development where I'm at, also mm-hmm. in Naples area and everything too. Yeah. There's a ton of it going up right now. Uh which yeah. I've noticed. And I and I think
1: they'll do fine. I mean, you know, obviously all those people moving from other states to Florida are buying, a lot of people are probably moving to Florida rent too, right? Yeah,
0: well they said too and I actually there's an article on this. I mean, they're doing more multifamily for the for the workers, you know, mm-hmm. your, your restaurant workers, you got yeah. some of those people that Maybe can't afford because the housing prices keep right. increasing. So and same with the rents. To and then a lot more vacation rentals are popping mm-hmm. up rather than annuals here because yeah. no, everybody would rather rent by the week and make a lot more money. <laughs> you know, so and that's- yeah, when that model works,
1: which it's had a little bit of pressure lately. Yeah, and I, and I'll offer that the whole concept of workforce housing in the oh. in the mainstream media and industry conversation is more than I've ever seen. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that cities and, you know, city councils and local businesses are like, yeah, we need workforce housing. Like this is a real thing for us. I mean, in California, we're the, you know, we're the, you know, leader in that space, unfortunately, meaning that we've needed workforce housing for probably decades. Um, But that's become a mainstream conversation. Like when you say workforce housing, people go, yeah, I know about that. You know, I know somebody who probably needs it or my company needs, you know, workers in our market and they can't afford the housing or whatever the narrative is that they have about that mm-hmm. um, but it's certainly becoming much more commonly talked about generally
0: So, so one thing that I wanted to touch on too with you is, so how do you decide what to develop also like size wise? I mean, whether it's duplex, fourplex, what do you, how are you deciding that? And then what are you charging? How do you decide what to charge for rents? How you, how do you distinguish that? Is it area related?
1: Yeah. So part of what, before we talked about, I said these families already live in these communities where we're building. So what that means is that generally we're, we're finding land opportunities in really B and C neighborhoods. We're for the most part, not competing with any, you know, your luxury, a multifamily developer and, then, you know, whatever neighbor, you know, the, you know, the better neighborhoods in Naples or better neighborhoods in Long Beach or wherever it is. We're really purposely avoiding those marketplaces for a couple of reasons. One is, First and foremost, it's not where our families live naturally. Like we want to really bring the housing to where they already are. And that increases their incentive to to move, right? Because it's an easy decision. Hey, I'm already in Fullerton. My kids are in school. I can move, you know, a half a mile away and, you know, and it's still Fullerton and my extended family is around. But also because we don't have the competition in those neighborhoods, Mm. really we're able to buy land much more effectively both in the cost of it but also um, in the the how can I put this? We're, we're predominantly pursuing sites that already have zoning in place and not doing major zoning, you know, yeah. entitlement work or you know, you know, general plan amendment or whatever we would do in California. And what we're finding in a lot of those neighborhoods is that's already where a lot of the zoning for high density already is. Meaning it's not the upper end suburban R one single family neighborhood or in the older apartment neighborhood with some older houses, maybe a mix of commercial on the main street, right? Sort of a, you know, your rundown, you know, hasn't been really built since the 1950s and sixties neighborhood, right? Older houses, Mm -hmm. older apartments. And that becomes the, you know, for better or worse, a place where families who can, can't afford the higher end, they default to these neighborhoods or they were already there classically, right? This sort of affordable housing by default. And so what we're doing is we're coming in these neighborhoods and we're finding, you know, already buy right sites. We're able to buy land effectively because we basically have almost no competition or very little. And uh, guess what? We're welcomed in the neighborhood for the most part right? Like they go, great, you're going to build on that site, man, that site's been attractive nuisance for our neighborhood dumping mattresses and couches or whatever have you or the, you know, the, you know, the young teenage kids are, you know, smoking dope in the, you mm. know, back corner of this or whatever, right? I'm I'm making these silly stories up, you get the point. And so generally, in fact, we're like, hey, great. And in fact, when when you are ready to rent, like, call me because I want to put an application in. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. But, you know, we know we're in the right neighborhood when people in the neighborhood stop by and they're enthusiastic about the housing opportunity. Plus we're probably the newest project in the neighborhood since the sixties, like in our neighborhood of Fullerton, I don't think there's any new housing since at least the early Mm seventies. Right. Which is, you know, 40, 50 years. Right. Um, And, you know, for various reasons, you know, zoning or whatever, have you, it's California, but for the most part, you know, any new developer isn't looking in this neighborhood because it doesn't have the incomes. Like if you want to rent high-end uh, class A product or you're selling condos, maybe if you're doing infill, you're not looking in these neighborhoods. It doesn't have the income, cat. you know, it's not the incomes of families that you want to buy or, or rent the the high-end stuff. And so it's just a good fit in, in several areas. So that's what has us where we pick. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, we're looking for underutilized sites, you know, one of the Classic narratives I use is you know, crappy old house, small house on a big lot with the right zoning, right? Mm-hmm. Underutilized. Like our Fullerton site was a 900 square foot house on, I don't know what the size of the site was, probably half an acre. It was a huge lot with the right zoning with a really junky house on it. And we were able to buy it cost effectively because guess what? They were selling it as a house mm-hmm. on land. Not a zone site for multifamily. Mm. Now, you know, that site had some challenges given the, that particular city's zoning code, but we're able to make it all work. Um, we're vacant sites, but you know, that these are always infill sites, right? We're in infill existing neighborhoods. We're probably two or three, you know, sort of concentric rings away from the central business district of a city, be it the downtown or the center, you know, core. Um, I wouldn't call these suburban neighborhoods um because they're not classically suburban where you got the community pool and all the you know pink houses in a row with the red tile roofs it's not that but it is a bedroom community for working families that happen to work in the industry that's in the city center or in the industrial area close by so these are like urbanized bedroom communities with some commercial mixed in generally older Right B and C neighborhoods, so that that really is sort of the criteria of, of what we need to find. And then remind me on the other question: uh, How, do, how do you
0: determine what the charge? Let's oh, rent. rent. Right. Yeah.
1: So uh, you know, like most people, we just survey the comparables in the marketplace. Now you have to ask the question: How many five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental comps are there? There's like almost none. On yeah. The app. And so we'll usually back into it through a couple ways. One is we do look for, let's say somebody bought a brand new condo townhouse and -hmm. then they rented it, but usually it's like, you know, 50 units and there's like three or four units for red, but those when they're available are good comps. But more often than not, we're defaulting to the single family house rental that's in the neighborhood around our project, right? Um, not a lot of five bedroom houses depending on older neighborhoods tend to have like you know three maybe you know one and two bedroom old old stuff and then like three bedroom so a lot of neighbors don't even have the house single family houses right that would have been built to sell at four or five bedrooms occasionally and so we'll you know we'll just we go what would a family choose in this marketplace if they had six or eight people in the family and they were looking to move into one unit or looking to move up what would their choice be if the market if they came out today and so we go single family house rentals townhouse rentals right and then we'll back into the rent from that so usually what i say is like if a house is four thousand a month in fullerton you know we'll usually want to be five hundred maybe three to five hundred below that right we just go hey they would have the opportunity to rent this house by the way in most markets it's like a handful of houses right and like Mm -hmm. the northern urban eyes orange county marketplace and fullerton there may be four or five houses that fit this criteria at any time on the marketplace right and then we'll come in below that so we're a newer product right we've got air conditioning we've got four bathrooms right usually we'll be superior to that older house that maybe doesn't have air conditioning or is beat up or has not enough bathrooms like a lot of times we'll get a house that's five bedrooms, but then it's two bathrooms, right? Mm-hmm. It has no garage. Maybe it's an older, smaller house, right? We see that often. Um, but the interesting thing that I'll share with you is that a lot of our families don't consider themselves to be single-family house renters. Like I always, when we first started the program, I go, oh, our main comp, our main competition is single-family rental house. Like a family would always choose to rent a house if they could afford it, all things being equal, right? They get the house, they get the yard, they get the white picket fence. Um, but, uh, the more we rent to families that we're seeing them like, like mentally, they see themselves as apartment renters. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they'll show up, they go, you know what? Uh, I was looking for a new apartment cause we needed this, you know, grandma's moving in with this. What we need to upsize? And we came across yours and we've never seen a five bedroom unit before. Mm-hmm. This is like nothing we've ever seen. And then we go, okay, that's great. And with this, you know, of course, we get in the sales conversation, you know, is this a fit, you know, is this affordable, all those kind of things. And then a lot of times I'll have our leasing teams, I go, you know, what else did you look at? Like, what other opportunities you're seeing in the marketplace? Are you looking at single family houses? And I would say probably 80 to 90% of the people go, no, I wasn't looking at houses. Um, You know, we we're, we rent apartments. I mean, they'll mm-hmm. use that exact language, but, you know, that's, that's generally sort of the you know, compacted narrative that they have. So that's been really interesting and we stand out big time. Like they go five in and four bath. I didn't even know that existed. This is great. And then they have to get into the math of, you know, our rents on average in SoCal, you know, Orange County, LA County would normally be, be, let's say 3,500 to 4,000 a month. Maybe today it's 3,500 to 3,800 depending on the marketplace you're in. And what they really get into is they go, uh, you know, it's almost like a per bedroom rent calculation. Nobody who, a family who rents would never do a, you know, per square foot, right? Like we do in the industry, like, oh, I'm, you know, a thousand divided, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But what they do, we can see them, they even talk amongst themselves, oh, well, if you, you know, if if grandma's in this unit and we're we're in the master and we got, you know, Johnny, who's the oldest kid, you know, they go, oh, it's, you know, it's 700 bucks a piece per bedroom. Like that's the mm-hmm. math that they do. Again, this economic sharing mm-hmm. model of sharing the cost of the housing and utilities and everything across the family group, or they'll divide it by earner, right? You know, if they have four earners in the household, then that starts to become the math. And I will tell you, uh, hands down, uh, there's nobody that competes with us on the value of a per bedroom rent. Um in the marketplace. Uh, And, and, you know, usually we're beating people handily on a per square foot. Although again, no tenant looks at that. Mm -hmm. So that's typically, you know, we sort of, you know, want to be a better value than the cops be it single family house or a townhouse that, you know, or, or occasionally apartments that are, you know, four bedrooms, no five bedroom apartments, no five bedroom townhomes, never occasionally houses. So we're, were pretty uncommon offer, which was on purpose, like we designed it that way. I was looking for something to be contrarian or uncommon, different, like marginal utility, like something that says the tenant to the tenant or the tenant says of it, gosh, that's such a better value, or it's better than anything else I've seen. I want to rent there. That's the, that's the reaction we want to produce in, in the renter.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I can't say it enough. What you're doing is it's very smart because, like you said, there's no you rarely see a five-bedroom condo. Yeah, forever. never, you know, almost it's, never. And and that's what, another question I had for you too. You know, like look at me as an investor. So if how do I invest with you uh, into this, and then also what is the process, and what would my return be on that investment yeah. too? And I actually, I want to talk to you, I'll talk to you probably more about, yeah, okay. you know, I, I need to, I need to come here and start doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, right. cause exactly. it, it's such a great idea because yeah. there, there is those middle, middle income families that, mm-hmm. you know, there, we do have a lot of Hispanic where I'm at too. And other families that, like you said, that like to live together, I preferably wouldn't want to live with my parents, mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, but, uh think i'd get annoyed after a week but you know it's just well there are a lot of people out there that do and they're okay with it too and and uh there's just not a lot of options out there without cramming. well they they
1: all just take it further they can't imagine living any other way yeah like you know culturally you know a lot of you know Families that have been in the United States for you know multiple generations, you know the nuclear family, and gosh, I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine moving my parents. I'm the same, right? Could wait to move out, man. 18, I'm like, "Oh." My <laughs> God. But I think you know, uh, one, we have more people that are of cultures that live multi-generationally naturally. So of course they go. Of course, this is how we would oil. like okay, yeah. to live. Think to live otherwise. But also, uh, there's the story about flat incomes and rising housing prices. You know that mm-hmm. that gap between those two produces an economic sharing narrative for families. Like maybe I don't want to live with my parents, but if I live with my parents, I can save money. I can, you know, I can save for a house. I can live a better life. That's why I offer that statistic where families that live multi-generationally have much lower rates of poverty, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a function of that, that that allows them to share the income and expenses, which means that any one individual or is not overburdened, where all of a sudden they fall off the map and they become homeless or they fall into poverty, right? And so the economic forces of where we are in the United States of of flat incomes and rising housing costs are producing a narrative for people that, you know, maybe before they go, I would never consider living at home with my parents, but it becomes like, this is better if I do, right? Mm -hmm. It makes sense if I do economically. In fact, you know, I'm at home, I have a I have three kids. all this is in, in in college. And, you know, like we're like parents, like we want to launch our kids successfully into the world. But we're and my wife and I are in a story, go, you know, does it make sense to at least offer the kids like, hey, look, if you need to come back, do it. Mm-hmm. Like because, you know, whatever. Uh, life is harsh and incomes aren't what they are. And, you know, we're working yeah. to have them be in, you know, pick careers that, you know, produce good incomes. Um, But the, I think the ongoing reality of this economic differential, particularly in California, of course, because of a supply constraint, this is a decades-long problem to be resolved. And maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. And so the choice is either for kids is you you move away, right? You know, people move to Texas, people move to Arizona, Nevada, because this is where a place they can live a sustainable lifestyle, or they live the economic sharing lifestyle and can stay where they might want to in California. So that- at what the, the the end result is, we had the lowest level of multigenerational living in the mid seventies. I can't remember It was like twenty eight percent. Can't remember the stats exactly. Pew Research did this as of twenty sixteen, which is the latest date I have it. Six that's twenty eight million households as of twenty sixteen. Sixty four million households lived multigenerationally. It was going up on the graph like this, mm-hmm. right? And I expect the trend to only go further. Um, that you know, the economics of where we are today and the incomes that are produced and the housing costs and just you know general rising cost of, of living generally are going to have more people choose this multi-generational economic sharing lifestyle. And so I think you know, the the long run, you know, sort of viability of this, I think is is beneficial. So um, to answer your question, um, for investors, um, we work uh, with investors, I think in a similar way, market standard as most developers, uh, we do welcome individual investors, family, high net worth, family offices that will come into our individual projects, um, invest us with directly. Uh, we, we've done this over now several UTH projects. And in fact, UTH, because of the model sort of has this, you know, travel in a different set of in- investor communities, right? more high net worth, ultra high net worth, small family offices that make these individual investments versus institutional capital. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we talked about that before, but big institutions aren't like necessarily understanding this product. And plus the investment amounts they need to make are very, very large. And we are doing larger projects. And this will answer your other questions. So, uh, you know, if anybody wants to invest, um, they can go to our website, which is www.ermcific.com and go to our contact page and all of our team members' email addresses are on there, including mine. Um, reach out via email or uh, my cell phone number's on there. You can text me. Um, but we uh, would encourage people to go to our investor education section. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can just learn, right? You don't even have to yeah. necessarily engage with us to just, you know, get a ton of learning. Um, and then, uh, you know, generally the return characteristics. So because we swap to this, you know, merchant build, short-term build it, run it, sell it, to the long-term that changed the, the dynamic of the returns that we're producing. But I will be quite honest with you, Bill, we're regularly producing, you know, at least projections of long-term hold on a 10-year basis, IRRs between, you know, 18 and probably 18 and 21% right now, which, you know, at least in my, you know, conversations with investors on a long-term hold that appears to be competitive. In the marketplace. I mean, that's our standard is like, you know, how do we compete effectively in the marketplace given all the other investment choices that people have, right? Mm-hmm. And that's everything stocks, bonds, yeah. Bitcoin, other real estate, other types of multifamily investments. You know, value adds a big space for people that are investing in multifamily. But you get to invest in a model that's highly differentiated, right? Like it's not your value add one and two bedroom product in Nashville that's next to another big project that's one and two bedroom. And, you know, they're all half empty or whatever it might have you in a distressed asset or value add environment. Um, you know, we're very specific about where we choose to go in the marketplaces, you know, we make sure we have the demand. And this is the advantage we have as a developer, by the way, we don't have to buy the asset that's available distressed or for sale value add in a particular neighborhood in Nashville we pick the neighborhoods that we want to go to that we think that this category of product fits well. And then we produce land opportunities within that neighborhood. Mm
0: -hmm. So we
1: have not full choice, but we get to design the product that we want, right? Very specifically these five and four bath. And we get to go into neighborhoods that we want, where in value add, I would just make the argument that you, you basically buy what's available in the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. You, You can't, I mean, maybe you do off market deals. There's that story um but distressed assets will be you know that they're distressed they the bank or whoever the brokers will sell them on the marketplace and that's what you have available it's not like you go oh well that asset is in that neighborhood in Nashville i really like this other neighborhood 3 miles away oh but there's no distressed assets in that neighborhood mm-hmm. so you know buy this deal or don't <laughs> right? yeah, maybe yeah. you wait and it comes up later but you know you're a little more Um, behold into the marketplace, what it produces in the value add space. Whereas, you know, we have the capability to produce projects like one of the expansion areas for us um, is in the opportunity zone capital domain. Well, guess what? We can go pick neighborhoods that are, you know, uh, opportunities and qualified first and fit our other criteria and standard for UTH, which by the way, they happen to match very well. OZ neighborhoods and UTH neighborhoods are very closely aligned. And then we go produce the projects that we want in there, size that we want, um, you know, sort of back corner, this corner, depending on land availability. So it's not a perfectly, you know, we don't get perfect choice, but we get more choice, right? To produce the project locations that we want. Um, is that did I answer the question? Make sure. Yeah, I'm, no, that's Gary?
0: yeah, really good, really good. Yeah. No, in, in like I said, what you're doing is very, it's it's very interesting. Um, Because there's just, and thinking about like my general area too, with like I told you, there's multifamily popping up everywhere, but it's not going to be sufficient enough to fit, you know, a larger family where they can Mm -hmm. all contribute all at once. And that's why what you're doing, that model of what you're doing is so smart because I think and definitely in the future too, as property values continue to rise, home, home values continue to rise. They're not slow, you know, It's just, especially with more and more people buying them, interest rates being where they're at. It's 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 a smart smart move. So I I give you a lot of credit on that. I give you a lot of credit. Thank you. Um, I know we're with time and everything too. I want to. I always jump in a a personal question too Mm because this one's this one's Mm -hmm. a little deeper. You know, got to get (laughs) got to get into you personally, but. Yeah. What lessons have you learned throughout your journey that you know we should all apply to our mm-hmm. own businesses that or lives that will help us grow? Deep question, I, yeah. and I get a lot of different answers on this mm-hmm. one. I love this question.
1: So I'll, I'll answer it. So you heard me uh, before. I mentioned Toby Hackett, at the IG Network, and I've been studying with them since 2012. And one of the reasons that that I've uh, studied with them so much is that they really Uh, teach, orienting around business related to building networks of capability, Mm -hmm. powerful networks, and also being um, what what they call a minus self, which is somebody who's open to getting help. And what I mean by that is, is rather than orienting in business or your personal life as somebody who, gosh, I know, gosh, I know everything. Like I, I got this. I don't need anybody to help me, right? I'm, I know what I'm doing. However, like people might might describe that, uh, that this is a person that says, you know, gosh, man, I need all the great people around me that I that I can get, and I need to make them good offers. You know, you get you could sort of put it in the domain, and, and Toby doesn't say it this way, but you know, don't be the smartest person in the room, mm-hmm. right? Or don't be you know, don't be the smartest person on your team, like have all the people around you who are smarter and better than you. And this is a version of that, although much more strategically coherent in the body of knowledge that, that, that they teach, but really to be the self that seeks out powerful help, meaning strategic, effective, competitive help, and that you need to be an offer to those people in, in return and give them good help. And that may be paying them well, that may be giving them good, you know, equity positions in the deals, whatever that be. But to orient around the idea that we're basically better in teams, that two people work to be together better than one, don't be a lone ranger. And I really had, and, and that is that is what I described, those people are your networks of capability. Mm-hmm. And I call it networks of capability because traditionally it would be networks of convenience. Who's around me? I'm in Long Beach. You know, Who's the best architect in Long Beach? Who's the best civil engineer? Who's the best land broker, right? And rather than associating or or doing business with people that are like close to you geographically or whatever, you know, it's convenient to really look around to the marketplace globally, right? Um, Using computers and the internet to find the best people, meaning those with the best capabilities to then transact with them because when they, with their great capabilities help you, you are much more effective in your business. Again, you have to offer them powerful help in return, right? And I swear, Bill, I when I launched, you know, Urban Pacific in two thousand, I knew I was generally a, a good developer. I knew how to do deals. I was completely had capability, independent to, you know, to find land, to design it, to build the building, to rent them, to do everything that a developer did. But really, if I look back on it, assessing my networks, the strength of my networks, I did have networks, but they weren't as strong as certainly they are now. Right. And also having the capability to be the type of person that can build the networks, you know, like effectively. Right. And so over the last several years, I've really spent a lot of time in basically putting together ever more powerful you know, groups of people, teams, employees, you know, uh, you know, people who work on my team with me and really, you know, weeding out the people that weren't
0: mm-hmm.
1: effective and bringing in people that were ever more effective, right? And I'm, and I'm going to continue to do this and I'll continue to do this for the rest of my life. And that alone, if you just did that, if you oriented this way around health and you and you built powerful networks, um, it will serve you for the rest of your career. And, and in fact, I will spend the rest of my career continue to do this. Hopefully I can pass this on as a legacy to, to my kids, both the knowledge of doing that, but also the networks, you know, mm-hmm. And that includes, you know, every type of network, you know, people that we learn with, people that we transact with. The most important one to me right now that I'm building is networks of investors who understand our product and believe in the, you know, the UTH model and, you know, believe in us and the story and trust us and and what we can deliver our time, right? We're building that. That's one of the primaries that we're building networks. But just to be oriented around the fact that you're not sufficient by yourself, that Lone Ranger is a weak model. Mm-hmm. Um, that working in teams with powerful, knowledgeable people is going to be the best thing you can ever do in your life. And frankly, the, the earlier you do it, the better. And in fact, that's the lessons I'm passing on on my kids is like, Hey, um, all these lessons I'm teaching you, a lot of them that they, you know, fight me on sometimes this guy like go, look, I'm doing it because I didn't have this early enough in my life. I want to deliver this knowledge to you so you can learn this when you're 20 and not learn it when you're 40 right? Cause you just are limited in time, right? The ability to produce from these networks and produce powerful transactions and networks is limited when you're 40 or 50 versus if you're 20, you have your entire life to be able to do that. And, you know, I, I even tell the kids, I go, look, if you do it right and if you do what these things that I've learned from others and taught me, and you can take those on yourself. You know, you, you can, you will be, you know, you will have enough money by the time you're late thirties and early forties. And by the way, I tell them I'd much rather have made my enough money, right? By the time I was 45. In fact, statistically, they say if when people are asked if they could choose when they could retire and have enough money, it's the average age they choose is 45 years old. Mm -hmm. And statistically in the United States, you know, less than 1% of people ever reach that. Yeah. And in fact, most Ninety nine percent will retire without enough money, and and mm-hmm. you know that's a sad testament to our education system and our knowledge. But you know these are the kind of things that I'm learning, so you know share them with you know folks like yourself and your audience, but you know everybody around me, frankly. Um, and that's you know part of my offer to build these powerful networks of capabilities to help them learn that kind of stuff fast, faster, more quickly, with more velocity than than I did you know i can help amplify what their natural talents are by you know you know passing on this knowledge that that people have passed on to me
0: yeah. yeah i mean the answer i love that answer by the way and and there's no power, more powerful thing than having a powerful network and the way to get out there. Most people don't network. They don't go out and meet new people and try to expand and grow. You know, they're kind of, they get comfortable, yeah. you know, it goes back to the stems back to the comfort thing too. When I figured out, okay, I need to network more, surround myself with people that are like-minded as well too that was a huge thing for me to be like, okay, I got to step it up with these, this yeah. guy's doing, you know, and you see it, you know in a minute. You and can really, never do enough
1: of that, right? Like in mm-hmm. fact, Toby has this great example. Toby is the head of Aji Network. He used to, he worked at GE for a period of time. He goes, you know, everybody remembers Jack Welch. He goes, well, Jack Welch had 300,000 people, you know, the employees of GE as his network of help. Mm-hmm. Think about how powerful that could be. Yeah. Now that's obviously a very extreme example, but, you know, my argument is you can never do enough of that. Uh, one other thing I'll, I'll, I'll sort of like finish this with. Grant Cardone, if anybody follows him, he had this great saying. He goes, strangers have everything that you want and need. People you don't know have capital. They have business opportunities. They have knowledge. And like you, what you talked about of going out to, to, you know, meet people. And I'm not saying necessarily networking like I think in the common term of, you know, going to a conference and passing yeah, out your yeah. cards. I'm talking about finding and making valuable offers to people in transaction of money, knowledge, whatever deals, whatever you have, that is of great value to them in return for great value back to you that mm-hmm. amplifies what you're doing, right? Like I have, you know, people that make what I do, So much better. In fact, if I didn't have them on my networks, I would be less capable of being Mm -hmm. able to deliver what I'm doing, which allows me to, you know, serve investors well. Right. So, you know, my networks help, you know, investors, you know, make money. Right. In fact, Toby had a great saying, he says, you know, people pay you for your networks. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't necessarily pay you for your knowledge, they pay you for true value right like real yeah. money like money that we take seriously like it's enough and it's and it's real and it's you know you know yeah. larger amounts of money it's not for your knowledge directly it's for the people that you know that can be of help to you so you can be of help to them or you know more directly so i was you know the grant cardone thing was great and you know what toby says about you know that those networks is you know similarly
0: that's powerful. Huge. that's huge very powerful right there too um, I know with time and everything too, I want last question what the show's all about to what exactly do people need to look for when investing in multifamily real mm-hmm. estate and why should they invest with Scott Shopping and Urban Pacific?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it goes back to similar, you know, so, you know, uh, it's our networks of capability, like our teams of people that help us um, produce projects efficiently, effectively, strategically. Uh, It's our offer, right? Like we want to be a differentiated offer. We want to produce a housing product or an offer in the marketplace that's got what I call margin utility. In other words, it's got something better about it than our competitors, be it we deliver into undersupplied markets, we deliver housing to multi-earned households, which are stable. Um, You know, we're delivering into, you know, recession resilient, you know, product categories, Right? So that's networks of capability. It's offered, like we have a unique, uncommon offer with margin utility. And then I would just add that it's like like it's like who we are as people, right? Like like uh, how we be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're people that are open to learning, that I don't sit here and say, I got it all and I know it all. In fact, I say, no, I don't. I need to be learning constantly. I need to have the best people around me that are better at all these things than me. I'm insufficient by myself. um, That, you know, through these different things I just described, um, that we're able to have people, you know, trust us, right? I mean, at the end of the day, no investor is going to invest in a project unless they trust the person. Nobody transacts in business generally without trust. And the way I hold trust really is made up of three things it's sincerity, reliability, and competence, right? competence we've talked about, right? Like, do we know what we're doing? Do we know how to do development? Are we picking the right sites? We have the right team members and networks of capability. But then, you know, sincerity is, you know, do we mean what we say, right? When we speak are words, you know, true. And do we hold to them Do we fulfill our commitments? Hey, I say I'm going to be there on Tuesday. Or we're going to have the phone call at, you know, noon, like you really get a phone call from Scott Chopin at noon, right? And, you know, ask people around me, they know this um and then you know the then reliability right do do we have people have the capability to trust that we're going to be reliable that we're going to be there when when we're going to stay there so sincerity is we mean that we're going to be there reliability is that we actually get ourselves there to the meeting Mm -hmm. right like we manage our lives and you know look uh, there's always breakdowns. There's breakdowns, you know, in companies, and the marketplaces, you know, people have, bre- you know, personal breakdowns. And I'm not meaning like a mental breakdown. I'm just saying, hey, I was going to that meeting and that car tire f- blew out and I missed the meeting, right? That's an example of a breakdown. And, you know, so does this person, the investor is investing with, can they demonstrate that they have the teams and the knowledge and and and, you know, the capability to produce these over and over again, such that, they can encounter breakdowns and not fall apart right i mean the lessons we learned from 2008 are serving us incredibly well right now all kinds of different things that you know we don't have time to cover here today and that sort of adds into that that competence question so i think that would be sort of the answer right i mean it's you know it's a it's a it's a complicated answer because you know people and trust and business transaction are complicated mm-hmm. but at the end of the day you know like this comes from our original, you know, humanness, our biology, you know, when we were cavemen, you had to be able to trust the person that you were transacting with because if, you know, they weren't trustworthy, they might kill you or they might rob you and, and, you know, you would be dead and your genes don't pass on or, you know, you're in the village and, you know, if you're not a trustworthy person, the village is going to kick you out. Right. I mean, like trust is an inherent, human biological component like we cannot live without it mm-hmm. people don't think of it that way but that's why it's so important because at the end of the day they go i gotta know i can transact with this person and not be hurt because if i'm hurt my family suffers i suffer i may die i may lose money whatever the you know that the, the results of that are um, and so, you know, one of the skills that, in fact, we've read, written several articles in our investor education section is how to assess sponsors of projects. How do you assess trust? Like, what are the criteria and standards for what makes somebody trustworthy? Like, what is it about them really? Not what somebody says, not their words, but their actions and their results, right? What I call highly about accomplishments. Did they really produce that project? Let's go talk to their investors and those investors make money, Right. Um, nobody's bulletproof, but I think people that can sustain that trustworthy transaction and delivering execution over time, with that sincerity, reliability, and competence, those are the people that you want to do business with. You just got to find them, right? And you got to yeah. sort of wage your way through all that background noise to be able to make correct judgments or assessments about people, right? I'm really through my learning with the IG network. I'm so much better at assessing people. Mm-hmm. And these things, because I need that too, right? I need to be, have the people around me have these, 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 you know, things about them, right? I can't have people that are going to not be trustworthy, and, and and you know, everybody has it, right? That guy didn't perform, you know, that surveyor was slow and and you know, couldn't deliver, and you know, yeah. made my project late, and you know, made that investor not so happy, right? So we got to work to have those people around us be able to perform at those high levels, so that we can in turn then perform for the investor, right? That's really the heart of it is all that action and capability to, you know, deliver, you know, not what we say in words, but what we, you know, do in action, right? Which is, which is an old way of thinking about it. But, you know, it's very fundamental to how human beings transact in business, and that will never change.
0: Yeah, it's like you said it right at the beginning of the show. I mean, you're the conductor. You have to put those people within that orchestra around you that are going to perform, overperform, right. and you're going to trust them along the way. You
1: right? Know, if there's
0: a trust gap. There's a problem. Yeah, and that's an any. Well, way. and the result
1: in this case is: did the did the you know symphony you know performance go well? Was it a beautifully performed piece of music? If you show up and it wasn't. Then you have, then the person you look to to see why it didn't happen is the conductor, right? And vice versa. You know, I mean, sometimes conductors will be all like, it's all about me. The good conductors will go, hey, it was me plus all these other great people, right? In this Mm -hmm. orchestra, we all kicked ass together and it was, you know, whatever a team effort. I don't think conductors would say that necessarily, (laughs) but, you know, that's the reality of it. You know, nobody's sufficient on their own.
0: Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Scott, this has been awesome, man. it's uh, everything. There's a ton of great info too. It's a ton of great conversation too. Um, well, appreciate, you know, being on. Yeah. No, I appreciate you taking your time. Last thing real quick, where can people find and connect with you?
1: Mm-hmm. I would encourage people to go to our website, which is www.urbanpacific.com. Uh, we have a contact page. Everybody's email address is there. Email is the best way to get a hold of us. Um, I would encourage people while they're there, do two things. Go to our investor education section, like boatloads of, you know, you know, educational materials, you know, sort of along the lines of what we talked about today, you know, how to underwrite deals, how to assess sponsors, information about the market cycles, you know, and our sort of read of the market trends and multifamily and the economy generally. Um, and then uh, on every page, there's a red sign up button. Um, hit that button and sign up for our Saturday e-blast. And we're basically putting out every Saturday, you know, all that same sort of information, educational, you know, market updates, economic cycle, you know, analysis and, you know, uh, interpretations, you know, obviously every once in a while we'll throw stuff in there about what we're doing. Uh, but it's, you know, the main purpose of that Saturday e-blast is to is to, you know, produce you know, value and knowledge out in the marketplace for people that are on that list.
0: Awesome, awesome, Scott. Once again, I really appreciate your time on this. I know you're a busy guy too, so no, thanks, I, Bill. Yeah, it was great to connect with you too. I'm sure we will be talking in the future because I love what. Yeah, I'm so do.
1: I, hey, listen, I'm an offer of help, uh, and I really mean that. You know, for anything, you know, you know how to get a hold of me, but uh, you know, I really orient to you know to be an offer of help, and you know, whatever way can be helpful to you, and you know, frankly, any, any of your listeners.
0: Yeah. Love it. Love it. Hopefully I can get you here in Naples. We can do some investing. Yeah. There you too. go. <laughs> yeah. I right, yeah, appreciate it. And thank you all for listening and I will see you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Real Build. And guys, if you would just take a little bit of your time to write a review below, I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't take long. Obviously, reviews are going to make this show be heard by more people. And that's what we need. We need to get this out there. So please write a review, share it with your friends and family. And thank you so much for everybody that's listening. And I'll see you guys on the next episode.